As the coronavirus pandemic took the world by storm, for the first time, many people in developed countries understood what it is like to lack access to essential medicines they need to survive. For people in poor countries, lack of access to medicines has always been a problem. This podcast explores the access to medicines issue and how we can promote global health more broadly. Famous scientist Marie Curie once said that talking is the best medicine. In this podcast, we will heed the advice of Curie and discuss how we can ethically and effectively tackle the health challenges currently affecting our world. Throughout this series, we will break down and explore fascinating new research being conducted by leading researchers and activists in the diverse field of public health who have dedicated their lives to understanding the problems and identifying the solutions to health crises that impact millions of people around the world. So, sit back and enjoy this episode of Talk is the Best Medicine, brought to you by the Global Health Impact Project. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talk is the Best Medicine. My name is Matt Pulowski, and today I will be co-hosting with Dr. Ryan Woltz, who joins us all the way from California. In today's episode, Ryan and I are joined by Mr. Robert Steinglass, who has an impressive background in the field of public health. Mr. Steinglass is an independent public health consultant who has been involved over the past 45 years in most aspects of strengthening immunization programs at all levels in approximately 50 countries, mainly in Africa, Asia, and the NIS. Originally working in smallpox eradication in Ethiopia and North Yemen at the beginning of his career, Mr. Steinglass then worked for the WHO for 10 years, where he established the nationwide immunization programs in North Yemen, Oman, and Nepal. Following his work with the WHO, Mr. Steinglass spent 31 years with the Washington, D.C.-based John Snow, Inc., where he led the immunization team on a succession of USAID-funded projects such as REACH, Basics, Immunization Basics, MCHIP, and MCSP. In addition to overseeing and providing technical support to countries, he has served on many advisory board committees at the WHO, UNICEF, Gavi, the CDC, Sabin Vaccine Institute, the Institute of Medicine, amongst others. Retiring in 2018 as founding director of the John Snow Immunization Center, Mr. Steinglass also authored more than 35 peer-reviewed journal publications and several book chapters on immunization and vaccine-preventable disease control over the course of his career. In our conversation today, Mr. Steinglass will share with us his work experience and expertise on effectively distributing vaccinations, especially to poorer regions of the world with limited resources. So with all that said, thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Steinglass. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me to the Talk is the Best Medicine podcast. Yeah, and thank you for coming again. And I just want to echo what Matt was saying. We're so excited to have you here with your extensive experience in this very timely kind of a discussion we're going to have. But before we get into the heart of everything, can you give us a little bit of background as far as, you know, what got you interested in all of this uh, immunization and distribution? Well, I graduated college in 1971. So I was very much a child of the 60s. And I couldn't imagine myself going into sort of some corporate kind of an occupation or everybody around me was studying medicine or law or investment banking. I remember hearing Dustin Hoffman in a movie called The Graduate saying, having to listen to his father's friend say to him, plastics, one word for you, plastics. And, and, and it really motivated me. I really wanted to do something meaningful in my life, something that really related to social justice and making a difference in the world. Yeah, that's, that's very heartwarming. And knowing that, that, you know, you want to do something that matters. I think that's very important, especially for kind of, well, almost all generations of people in their twenties and stuff like that. It's really good to hear what led people down their passions. And speaking of that, do you think you could, can we start your talk on uh, immunizations and your work on smallpox? Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, thank you for hosting me. And my presentation is on getting beyond vaccine access to vaccination, an essential but wobbly platform. So over the next 20 minutes, I'm going to briefly discuss five topics, broadly about public health and prevention. Uh, secondly, about what I call the messy middle ground between access to vaccines and achieving disease control targets. 
for example, what we would call vaccination. How do you get those shots in the arms? Thirdly, the context evolution and the status of vaccination programs in lower and middle income countries and the challenges that are faced. And the fourth, the immunization players involved. And finally, your role in immunization, if you choose to accept it. So public health, in my opinion, is a great field of study and practice, and I hope some of you will en enter it. Uh, it's about a noble and meaningful things, like I said earlier, social justice, equity, public good. But public health and preventive health is poorly funded by governments. And unfortunately, we, we must relearn too often that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The devastating situation in Texas is a recent reminder that we haven't invested enough in preventive maintenance, even of the electric grid in that state. So prevention is really important. Let me illustrate a problem facing preventive health. Please raise your hand if you know an individual, it could be yourself, a friend or a family member, an individual whose life was saved by the heroic or emergency efforts of a doctor or a nurse. You, you may even still have a picture of their face or remember their names. So I'm guessing that everyone has raised their hand. So now put your hand down. Now, raise your hand again if you know an individual whose death was prevented by vaccination. So my guess is that some of you wanted to raise your hand but really couldn't because you can't know for sure which person, which individual would have died in the absence of vaccination. And this illustrates the difference between concretely saving a life through uh, emergency critical care and abstractly preventing a death. Public health and prevention is like this. It's often nameless and faceless. So be prepared. If you do go into immunization as a career or preventive health more broadly, there's often great satisfaction for all the good you'll do, but don't expect anybody to thank you in the end for a disease that they didn't get. So along these same lines, when have you ever seen a news headline like, no jumbo jet crashed yesterday? Or a headline, local water treatment facility protected our drinking water again yesterday. So my point here is that when public health measures are indeed working, they go unrecognized which often results in being taken for granted and often underfunded. On the other hand, when there are disease outbreaks, you bet people are gonna take notice, at which point we go from neglect to panic in a, in, in a second flat, and later we invariably go back to neglect after the outbreak runs its course. We demand answers and we demand accountability. Unfortunately, this seems to be human nature not to do the prevention in the first place. So belatedly, with the pandemic here for 12 months, the all essential distinction between vaccine and vaccination, also known as shots in the arms, has finally started to receive more attention. Until now, the overwhelming focus has been on the discovery, the development, manufacture, supply, financing, and deployment of vaccines against COVID. But now finally, it's become clear that there's been insufficient attention on what it actually takes to get populations vaccinated. So now put COVID out of your mind for a moment. If the public thinks about vaccination at all, it tends to focus on inputs, for example, on vaccines, or on outcomes, for example, vaccination coverage rates, or on impact of disease reduction, mortality reduction. But the key is what I call, and what is often overlooked, the messy ground, all of the processes that must be in place and must work properly to get the vaccination job done. For decades, I've been saying that vaccines work when vaccination works, and vaccines don't deliver themselves. You see, the devil is in the details, in the processes to make vaccination work. Consider that a vaccine may have efficacy under highly controlled research settings of maybe 90% or more, but its effectiveness could be zero, zero percent if it's used inappropriately under real life field situations. So we've got to get the processes right. The fo focus that we have is often on vaccination coverage rates, but coverage alone isn't enough. People must be reached with potent vaccines in a timely, safe, effective, and affordable way before they get exposed to the disease. And also with good quality services so that 
they'll want to return to complete all of their doses. So to do all of that within an overarching health system, in my opinion, is a development challenge. It's not just a disease control challenge. This is a marathon, it's not a sprint. However, we tend to be addicted to instant vaccination coverage improvements through one-off mass campaigns, which of course plays well into short-term political interests, but whose effect typically will not last very long. In my view, it's strong and steady that wins the race. It's important to understand context. So vaccination programs in Africa and Asia and other places where I've worked are organized differently than in the United States. They're mostly managed and implemented by the public sector, not by private fee-for-service providers. Health staff are responsible for their catchment area, a geographic area, and they're expected to be good managers to achieve high coverage. They can't always wait passively for parents to come to them. They offer services, of course, within their health facilities, but they also go on outreach where they take the service to communities situated further away. They may walk, take mules, ride motorcycles to get to those distant villages. In the clinic, there may be a single refrigerator with vaccine supplies lasting one or two months for a large population of maybe 10,000 people. Vaccines are in multi-dose vials and there are seasonal and geographical challenges to overcome. Even when doing a good job, staff may be poorly paid, unsupported and unrecognized. I'll speak now briefly about the evolution of the global immunization program. So uh, after smallpox eradication in which I participated in the late 1970s, the rally cry went out for infants to be routinely vaccinated with additional vaccines to prevent additional diseases beyond smallpox. And thus the expanded program on immunization or EPI was born. We went from 5% coverage globally in the mid seventies to 85% in 2019, right before the pandemic hit. Until the 90s, resource poor countries used just a few vaccines and now they use almost three times as many, including against common causes of pneumonia, diarrhea, and even cancer. Countries avert about 3 million vaccine preventable deaths every year. Polio has for the past 20 years been nearly eradicated Measles has been eliminated in entire countries. Tetanus deaths have dropped 95% from about a million down to 50,000 per year. And I should mention there's a control to elimination to eradication. Nowadays, many more partners are involved than there were before. There's a new focus on serving the neglected poor, especially since the EPI was designed 45 years ago, primarily as a rural model, but the world has become urbanized since then. There's a focus on reaching left out populations everywhere. There's a new focus on vaccination across the entire life course. In other words, not just focused on infancy anymore. And there's a focus on new vaccine introduction. And finally, there's also a greater recognition by the health system that we've got to better engage communities in active partnerships. My former company that I was with for 30 years, JSI, John Snow Incorporated, has been involved in all of these dimensions I just mentioned. So I'd encourage you to visit their website. Just Google JSI and immunization. A word about vaccine hesitancy, which we hear so much about. Now, I don't dispute it must be addressed and that there are many reasons for it. But I also believe it has largely resulted from our success in reducing morbidity, disability, and mortality from vaccine preventable diseases. We've become a victim of our own success. So now people fear the vaccines more than the diseases. It's simplistically assumed, however, that better communications must be the answer, but it's much more complex than communications. And it also involves elements of trust, convenience and confidence. So rather than make the needed improvements, unfortunately, the health system often quickly blames the parent and attributes low vaccine coverage to so-called vaccine hesitancy. But we in the health sector have to go beyond simplistic calls for better access to vaccines. We must be asking whether the vaccination services, not the vaccines, but the vaccination services are available. For example, are health workers even present in their posts with adequate vaccine supplies? Are the vaccination services accessible 
for example, can parents access services or are there barriers such as social, cultural, are the vaccination services affable? In other words, are health workers friendly or do they tongue lash or harangue the mothers who bring their children late or who have forgotten to bring vaccination cards or whose children are wearing unwashed clothing? These are the kind of questions we have to ask. Are the vaccination services acceptable to parents? For example, are the services offered at convenient times? Are parent, or are parents made to wait, standing for hours in the sun without access to drinking water? Are the services affordable? Do health workers, for example, expect payment for what's supposed to be a free service? Can parents afford to forego a, a day's pay or a day's labor to reach the vaccination site, which could be distant? Are parents are aware that they must return for follow-up doses? Are they told that in a language they understand? Do parents have agency? Meaning, do, does, for example, the mother-in-law or the husband forbid the mother from taking the child to the vaccination session in the first place? Are programs accountable and held to account? For example, when the program says to come for a vaccine or for vaccination, will all the needed vaccines be opened and provided on that day? Will there be enough vaccine? Or are parents told to come back another day, even though they may have walked for hours to get there? Let me introduce you also to some of the key players in vaccination programs overseas. And there are a lot of players. You've got ministries of health who are in charge. You've got WHO, I'll discuss them later. You've got UNICEF whose focus is mostly on vaccine supply, some technical support for social mobilization and advocacy. You've got Gabby, the Vaccine Alliance, whose focus is mostly on new vaccine introduction in resource poor countries. And they help by subsidizing prices for a few years to expedite these new vaccines to be introduced. You've got the US Centers for Disease Control who do mostly disease surveillance, lab support and research. You've got the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation who are willing to take higher risks in exchange for a possibly greater return on investment. And they tend to look for game-changing technological fixes, which may not always be the solution in every case. You've got NGOs, including professional associations and faith-based organizations. Academia is involved. Bilateral development agencies are involved, like the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. And they, they spend your American tax dollars on foreign assistance. So you have a stake in what USAID is doing. And then you have expert technical groups like JSI and others. And with so many actors, it's important to appreciate this institutional landscape because their governance, their mandates, their interests, their values, their financing mechanisms, and their organizational structures all differ. So you have to understand how to navigate among them. And just one example, WHO. They're headquartered in Geneva. They have six regional offices. They have the legitimacy which comes from being a member organization. Countries are actually members of WHO and they pay annual assessments. There are also voluntary contributions which WHO accepts and that heavily influences what WHO pays attention to. They have a legislative body, the World Health Assembly. Their mandate is to work with ministries of health only. It's a policy and normative setting body, but it also provides technical experts in some countries for some of the favored and well-funded interventions, for example, like polio eradication. Their normative and policy setting role in recent years has to some extent been eclipsed by more deep pocketed partners. And as you'd imagine with so many donors, there's always a battle of ideas leading to policies and strategies. The figure in my article shows a conceptual framework for the immunization subsystem, which is an integral part of the broader health system. So imagine for a moment a bicycle wheel with spokes emanating from a common point in the center of a circle. And each of those sections of the wheel, the bicycle wheel, could be labeled policies, financing, community action, monitoring, surveillance, advocacy, communications, training, cold chain and supply chain, logistics, supportive supervision, and in the center, management. These are the many components of a cohesive and coherent, well-functioning vaccination program, indeed of any health program. And like I've said, vaccination programs consist of more than a supply of vaccine and disease surveillance. Because the reasons why children don't get vaccinated are multifactorial, 
and using the analogy of the bicycle wheel, then by extension, we need many varied perspectives and disciplines. In addition to immunologists and virologists and epidemiologists, we need healthcare providers, managers, financial managers, logisticians, computer scientists, communicators, community activists, advocates, economists, researchers, politicians, ethicists, philosophers, lawyers, social scientists, such as medical anthropologists, demographers, sharps, waste management experts, et cetera, et cetera. So you can see it's a big tent and there's room for each of you in it. Do recognize and try to avoid what has been called epistemic trespassing. That is uninformed opinions without any grounding in infectious disease control, epidemiology, or public health practice, such as we unfortunately saw throughout last year with a pediatric radiologist advising the former president on the pandemic. The global immunization community gets preoccupied with rapid resource intensive, externally driven and unsustainable attempts to quote, boost routine immunization, by which they mean to increase, increase immunization coverage, not strengthen the system. And there's a world of difference. Their impatience re results in end runs around the system and taking shortcuts, which can't be sustained when the project money runs out. One-off campaigns and disease-specific campaigns become ever more popular to meet global goals without addressing the fundamental constraints impeding long-term improvement. And as global deadlines approach, impatience increases and countries are directed to concurrently achieve both rapid and sustainable results, which of course is inherently impossible. My last point is that despite common claims that routine immunization is the foundation or the cornerstone or the bedrock, for everything we want to accomplish in the wider world of immunization. Routine immunization has unfortunately become sidelined and taken for granted. It's boring, it's routine. Now, imagine a horizontal balance board with routine immunization as the base. And that balance board has on top of it new initiatives which keep getting piled on top, which then risks collapsing that routine immunization balancing board from the sheer weight. So we need that strong routine immunization system if we want to sustain coverage gains from periodic campaigns, if we want to support introduction of new vaccines, if you want routine immunization to be a vehicle for other population-based health interventions as it can be, and if we want to prevent mortality. But as the workhorse, routine immunization needs regular maintenance and investment. And mass campaigns, unfortunately, receive most of the attention and financing. So the question remains, can we design programs to accomplish multiple objectives in parallel? And how should we hold single disease programs more accountable to achieve the promised collateral benefits? So in conclusion, we must focus more on the processes, the messy middle ground between access to vaccines and achievement of those disease control targets. In other words, routine vaccination, getting that shot into the arm. And finally, we must sustain political and popular interest in vaccination. Since the job is never done, kids are being born every year. Thanks very much for listening. Could I just mention um, this book that we wrote, myself and some Peace Corps volunteers from the early 70s in Ethiopia. It's called Eradicating Smallpox in Ethiopia. Peace Corps volunteers' accounts of their adventures, challenges, and achievements. It's got about 15 chapters written by all Peace Corps volunteers. It's like a memoir. And, and it, frankly, frankly, it's an adventure story about what public health is and can be. Back to you. Thank you, Robert. That sounds like a must read right there. Really, really interesting. I'd love to read that. But um, also, thank you so much for your presentation. That was really interesting. I think you gave a great overview and a great account for the field of public health. Um, one of the points I really found interesting in your talk was about how right now people just think a vaccine's about developing it and the problem's gone. Um, and I think you raised many great points of there's so many factors that prevent people from once we have the vaccine from actually getting it in their arms. So I guess I want to start us off right here with a question about your experience in the more technical aspect of it, of actually working on the ground, of advising these different groups of how to get people the shots themselves. So my question for you is, what is the most dis difficult aspect of coordinating 
uh, what I can imagine is an already complex process of immunizing a population in a developing foreign nation. I know you mentioned also you'd worked on smallpox, so maybe what was the challenges there, but also any other diseases as well? Right, that's a good question. Um, and because there are so many more partners now than there were back when I started, it becomes more difficult to coordinate, but it becomes also more rewarding because we have so many different groups that want to contribute in some way. Every country that I'm aware of that I've worked in, and I've worked in about 50 countries, maybe 45, 50, they, they all have what they call interagency coordinating committees where all of the partners congregate on a monthly basis led by the Ministry of Health, where they can discuss upcoming activities, challenges to overcome, et cetera. Unfortunately, one of the glaring omissions is that oftentimes civil society isn't invited to those meetings. And I think that's a, a serious oversight that needs to be addressed. In addition, most countries have what they call national immunization technical advisory groups. And this would be a higher level group that's independent of the Ministry of Health, oftentimes run by people from in charge of the, the pediatric department of a medical school or the infectious diseases department of a medical school, professors who lend a lot of legitimacy and credibility to their review of different uh, issues. Because the countries are on the receiving end oftentimes of a lot of global advice, sometimes conflicting, and they look to oftentimes WHO to help them sort through all of the advice. And it's the countries, though, that have the responsibility to figure out what makes sense in their local context. And hopefully they get support from the partners to translate those global policies and global strategies into approaches that would make sense locally, again, in their context, because context is really important. So it was a simpler time before there weren't a whole lot of competing priorities. Now there are a lot of legitimate competing priorities beyond immunization. So, I mean, the good thing about, if there's anything good about COVID is that this is a disease that's feared universally. Well, I think it's feared universally. Smallpox, smallpox was certainly feared universally. So it was very easy to get most countries to sign up for smallpox eradication. And of course, if you don't get all countries to sign up, it's a problem because you can't eradicate a disease if one country decides they don't want to participate. And that, in fact, was the case in Ethiopia at the beginning. Yeah, that's a, you know, really great point. And I like how you kind of brought up that, you know, smallpox was kind of this thing that was universally feared. And, you know, it, from what I understand of history, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like that that is that universal fear is what led to routine immunization of, of all these other diseases. So, you know, kind of using what we have now with COVID and kind of this fear of COVID and, and also like knowing that, you know, global warming, these pandemics are becoming more and more frequent, you know, as we've had three SARS outbreaks in the last 18 years, not including Ebola and, and other influenza. So I guess what I'm, what I'm wondering is, you know, can we build some sort of infrastructure while we're developing the infrastructure to distribute the COVID-19 vaccine so that it could later be used for other pandemics or, or even for routine immunization? Like, is it, uh, can we do something dual purpose? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head on that one because this has been a, an abiding concern of mine over my entire career, really, because it's, I mean, uh, Bill Fagey, who was the director of the CDC and, a, and an amazing person and a giant in public health, literally, he's six foot seven and, and figuratively, <laughs> he, he wrote a book called Fears of the Rich, Needs of the Poor. It's a great book. And it that title alone says a lot that, you know, we tend to pay attention in the United States to diseases that have the potential to hurt us here in the United States. So we basically disregarded Ebola in 2014 for about eight months until an American doctor and nurse came from West Africa infected with Ebola. So we don't tend to yeah. invest in uh, diseases, unfortunately, unless they are a real scare and a fright and, and fearful for the homeland, so to speak. And yeah, kind are, of like an existential threat, right? That's right. That's right. So th yet there are huge needs in um, poor countries, in resource poor countries. So I think that when there is a concern in 
the West or in the North with a lot of money, and they give money through voluntary contributions to WHO or to other groups or philanthropy steps in with a lot of money. I think there's a real risk that it distracts local governments that are trying to build those sustainable structures that you refer to, that infrastructure. So then the question becomes, if they are going to come in with a lot of money and divert attention to a particular disease that may be of greatest concern in the West, then shouldn't there be some obligation to make sure it's done in a way that you do get a, a twofer? You're not only you know, improving global security by reducing the disease countries so that it doesn't come to our shores, but in fact, you're helping to build capacity in those resource poor countries. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, when the world declared a goal of polio eradication in 1988, so what is that, 32 years ago, it, the resolution from the World Health Assembly said that polio must be eradicated, quote, in ways which strengthen national immunization programs and health infrastructure. That was the charge. But in fact, because the World Health Assembly felt that strengthened systems were going to be needed both as a precondition to embark on polio eradication, but also a condition for the success of polio eradication. And yet here we are 32 years later, and there are still no indicators owned by the global polio eradication program that relate to the routine immunization program. Now, this, I think, has changed in the last year or two, but it's taken about 30 years for them to focus on it. Because mm. people working in this program realize that at the end of the day, the question that's gonna be asked is whether you, you eradicated the disease, not whether you promised uh, such and such you know, positive collateral spin-offs and benefits. So it's a real problem. It's a real disconnect between the rhetoric and the reality. And I think the answer is that we have to hold single disease programs more accountable for sustained improvements in coverage with all the antigens and all the other measures of routine immunization system strengthening. So I, I wish I could have an easy answer for you. Yes, we should expect more from these disease control programs. But you know, if you sit around at night after a conference with a beer and you talk to po people involved in these disease control programs, they'll often say to you, well, why is it my job to fix the routine program? I'm here to eradicate a disease or eliminate a disease. And besides which, we don't know how to do it and we don't know what works and it takes too much time. Yeah, and I think that raises a great point. Like some people want more of a sprint method, I think you call it at one point where it's kind of fix the problem we, ha we have right now. And then others are calling for the more horizontal where building up the whole system. And something you've talked about is more of a diagonal or something that kind of talks about the logistics and more of kind of taking the middle approach to kind of merge them both. How do you think we can start moving towards that? I know you mentioned during your talk, there's so many actors, you have international body who may be more focused on maybe like Western, how these diseases will come to their shores. How were you able to mediate or how can we mediate to kind of work towards that more middle diagonal approach that you advocated for or believe would work best? I can tell you it's very difficult to do for the reasons I've already outlined. The political, the short-term political cycle tends to focus on short-term coverage gains and short-term reductions of disease outbreaks or elimination or eradication. So I don't have an easy answer. I've struggled with this my entire career, and, and there's a pretty good body of literature and research on this to test whether or not there have been improvements in the routine programs due to these more single-focused approaches. As I said, having indicators early on to make sure that the programs are focused more broadly than just on the disease at hand. To give you an example, I was on a global consultation in 2011 organized by WHO to assess the feasibility of eradicating measles. And the thing that struck me was there was a lot, a lot of studies done in advance of the, the consultation that we were able to study, to look at. And um, one of the things that struck me is that none of the plans that had been prepared with the support of UN agencies, none of them in the process of costing out what it was going to take to eliminate measles in that country included a line item on investing in the routine immunization program to strengthen it. So I think we just have to hold the implementing agencies and the partners more accountable 
for how funds get spent so that we can more reasonably expect some positive spin-offs. And there are some positive spin-offs, spin it's not all negative. There's been a great development of laboratories and disease surveillance, for example, as a re result of polio eradication, but not investments in the routine program. So maybe you can rephrase this question if, if you don't like the way that this is said, but in your paper, you're kind of talk about all these different factors that each individual country uses, like that is hurting them, such as like some countries, the healthcare workers are rude or, you know, not considerate as far as, you know, in your talk, you're talking about, you know, us people for, you know, being dirty or having, not having their immunization records. But then other countries, you know, you have the problem of distance of how far away people live and, you know, drinking water. So I guess how involved in the advisement of like the distribution of the vaccine should a entity like COVAX be towards like, you know, identifying those specific factors and telling the countries, you know, what, what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. Well, I see it quite the opposite. I see it the other way around. I see that countries and in fact, even right down to peripheral health workers and communities have a real deep understanding of what works in their system. They may not have been encouraged or incentivized or motivated to do a good job because health workers are poorly supported in many cases, especially those working in the public sector. Most investment goes to clinical care, not to public care. So it's actually the other way around. I think groups like COVAX should listen to and understand the operational challenges that countries will have in introducing a new vaccine against COVID, and in some cases, multiple new vaccines, which is potentially a source of confusion because different vaccines will sometimes have different target age groups, different number of doses required, different storage and handling requirements. In fact, that's a big issue. The actual dosage of the vaccine might be different, not just as well as, as I said, the number of doses. So I think the operational constraints that countries face are important. And I think politicians within countries and global partners need somehow to elevate the voice of technical players so that they understand what some of those operational constraints are so that in the actual selection of products for individual countries, some of those operational considerations are taken into consideration because we will all want better equity, for example, take of COVID vaccination. But if a particular vaccine requires an impossibly cold storage and even though in recent days we've learned that maybe the Pfizer vaccine may possibly be stored at minus 20 degrees Celsius, about minus five degrees Fahrenheit, instead of some ridiculously minus 100 degrees Fahrenheit, even if that's the case, it's still not easy to handle a vaccine at the periphery that has to be used up as quickly as within five days storage at two to eight degrees Celsius. That's about 37 to 46 degrees. So in, in fact, although equity is an important focus, Countries should get all the vaccines that they need, including the Pfizer vaccine, but recognize that that Pfizer vaccine is probably only going to be suitable in some larger urban centers where there are freezers to store it at the appropriate temperatures. So unwittingly, one could actually even contribute to inequity if that was the only vaccine that countries were given, because that vaccine is not going to be suitable in many rural areas. I want to touch a bit on that urban versus rural divide, because that really is, I know, from past public health campaigns by WHO and all these other organizations, it's really been unique challenges of how you get to these rural environments. In your experience, how difficult is it to collect data on people like distant from urban centers? And if it is difficult, how accurate do you think data is on the rural areas? And how does that play into decision-making of how these vaccines do get allocated? I know you mentioned the cold chain vaccines that require the cold may only be suitable for urban centers where there is more clinical support, but what about just other factors or even vaccines that don't need the cold? How does that urban rural divide work and how do you collect data from the rural areas? Right. So, you know, mind you that, you know, most countries have achieved over 80% coverage. So they're doing something right. And uh, there's been a lot of effort and attempts made to improve the capacity of health workers, the cold chain. And by the way, the cold chain, we tend to think of that as just equipment. But I, I like to talk about the supply chain, which is more than just equipment. It's, it's, as you say, it's the movement of data 
back and forth. So one has an end-to-end -end visibility of how much vaccine is out there and how much more needs to be resupplied. So there's been a lot of effort in those exact areas over the years. So it's only when a vaccine comes along that has an unbelievably stringent requirement for super subarctic kinds of temperatures that it really taxes of the system. For the most part, most of our vaccines are stored at two to eight degrees Celsius, 37 to 46 Fahrenheit. Most peripheral health facilities have refrigerators that they can use. They have cold boxes and vaccine carriers that they take the vaccine further out on outreach to distant communities. So they're able to manage quite well. And in fact, I think, frankly, some of those experiences overseas can even be influential here in the United States, where we're going to need to try to figure out how we're going to reach some of our remote populations as well, because we don't have, and most countries don't have, an adult immunization program that works particularly well. As far as data goes, yes, we can always improve on data. The one good thing about vaccination programs is there is an enormous amount of data that are generated at every level. And in fact, we can use those data to better manage the services at each level. The important thing there is to make sure that people who spend a fair amount of time recording and collecting the data understand the value of that data. Once they understand that value, they're more likely to enter correct data. And it can be an empowering and motivating thing for people to actually, for the first time, be taught to understand their own data and how well they're doing. You know, in your talk, you said something very, very important. Actually, as you as you started your talk, uh, something that I felt was really important was like, how often does someone preventing a death or getting sick, how often is that prevention mentioned? And so obviously routine immunization, while it's on a wobbly platform, it's been wildly successful over the years. So with those successes, what type of lessons do you think that we could take away or that maybe we could start implementing here in the U.S. as you're kind of talking that, you know, we can learn those lessons? Right. I think, I mean, again, you know, the United States back in the Reagan days in the late 80s and early 90s, we had a measles epidemic that killed, I think it was about 150 people in the United States. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. It might've been 50 people, but somewhere, let's say around hundred people. And uh, we had very low coverage and it was embarrassing to me actually, because I soon afterwards found myself in the former Soviet Union in Central Asia, realizing actually a lifelong ambition to go to Central Asia ever since I was a little kid. This was a, um, an area of the world that was closed to Americans. So I got there a few months after the collapse of the Soviet Union, wanting to assess whether or not these new countries, former republics, now new countries, the stands, were going to need any support to maintain high immunization coverage, which they had previously had. And it was a bit of a crapshoot. It was a guessing game because nobody could really predict what was going to happen in the future and whether these countries were going to continue to be supported by Moscow, for example. And the first question that the heads of disease prevention asked me in these countries, an American, I, that nobody had ever met an American. I was the first American that anybody met ever, <laughs> everywhere I went in these countries, because <laughs> the global community hadn't yet entered really. And the first question they always asked me was, what is your immunization coverage in the United States? And very, I had to be very honest about it. And I wasn't embarrassed. I said, look, our immunization coverage in the United States is better than Bolivia's and Haiti's. Full stop. They would wait. They were waiting for me to continue. I said, "No, that's it." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, but they appreciated the candor, and uh, it, it turned out to be a great intervention that we offered some really good support, and the U.S. government offered great support to the Central Asian republics. But my point is that these were countries that were already doing a good job, and there are many countries in Africa and Asia that are doing a really good job, better than the United States in those days, and right up until recently better than the United States. Now, in the United States, we're doing well now. We're in the 90 percentile for, for most vaccination coverage, high, high 90 percent. But there's still things that we can learn from lower middle-income countries about, for example, how to engage communities, how to engage, how to do outreach into communities. But in fact, we're all learning at the same moment right now with COVID about how to vaccinate adult populations. It's not something that any country really knows well how to do in the world. I think that's really interesting that, you know, the United States also can learn from these other countries about how they've been doing it. And one of the, the factors that you mentioned as well, that 
influences how successful a vaccination campaign is, is how much trust the people have in both the vaccine and in the healthcare professionals that they're working with. So what kind of measures have you seen either in these developing nations or hope to see developed more? What kind of measures are taken so that families adequately trust the healthcare workers for routine immunization? And how do you think healthcare workers can show families that they can be trusted? I, I think that's a really important question. Uh, and I would say that for the most part, I think the most trusted person in the life of a person in a lower and middle income country is the health worker when it comes to health advice. Now, granted, there could be a loss of trust because there may be a fundamental distrust or mistrust in the government more broadly, and that will play out in the immunization sector as well. But for the most part, people in rural areas appreciate their health workers and trust them. Now, they may not appreciate the fact that a health worker may say to a community, look, I'll be there on the third Thursday of every month to deliver outreach vaccination to your community. They may not appreciate the fact that they get ready for this person to come and the person doesn't show up. That results in a loss of trust. And the reason that they sometimes don't show up, the health worker, is because they're poorly supported. Their motorcycle broke down. They're not given per diem payments to do that work. They're not recognized for that work. Or someone has passed away maybe in their family and there's nobody to replace them or, or so many reasons. So, so this is why to sustain the trust of the community, because it's very easy to lose the trust, but to sustain the trust of the community, you've got to sort of be truthful and meet your obligations. And when you say you'll be there on the third Thursday of the month, you, you have to. And if there's a problem that needs to be addressed, then the health system needs to be willing to figure out how to generate more resources to allow that health worker to get there. And that could mean looking beyond the health sector to other sectors, talking to the lo local governor or the local administrator or the district governor to figure out, is there a way, for example, for local existing community groups to hop on a motorcycle and go into the town and collect the vaccinator since the car broke down and bring that vaccinator out so that when the vaccinator comes, the, the community is more confident that, well, the community is more confident the vaccinator will come in the first place. And, and also we need that for better optimized coverage because if people start to have a loss of confidence that the vaccinator will come, they're not gonna forego a day's wage, a day's work in the field, a day's work on the shrimp boat and hope that the vaccinator will come if so many times they've been disappointed. So I think there needs to be greater involvement of the health sector and also the non-health sector in communities to make sure that kids when they're being born are being tracked locally. We've done a lot of work at JSI on local tracking of kids by communities, and it's been very effective. So I think there are things that can be done within and outside the health sector to sort of maintain that trust. So I just wanted to give a little bit of reference for some of these numbers that you've been saying, you know, like 70, 80, 90%. Why is it so important to kind of reach these levels is because there are these certain thresholds. And when you drop under them is when we have these outbreaks similar to the one that you talked about, the Reagan. So, you know, it is important to reach that 90%. As soon as we drop below that, then, then that's when we have these outbreaks. So that is like some of the context for why some of these percentages and how devastating it is just to drop below 90. My kind of final question that I want to ask you is in the preparation, you kind of told some pretty fun stories of, you know, how you had a motorcycle, but there wasn't any roads. And so you had to rent a mule skinner and his mule to get these vaccinations and stuff like that. So what type of struggles do you think that the volunteers on the ground are having that aren't really being reported on or, you know, are there any kind of heroisms that you could advance for, you know, what the volunteers have to go through? Just quickly before mentioning that, um, you're right about herd immunity levels needing to be at a certain level and uniformly high everywhere, not just in some areas. I always tell people who are vaccine hesitant that if you want to not take vaccines, make sure you live amongst people who do take vaccines because you'll be protected by their vaccination. If you live in communities that are mostly vaccine hesitant, you're at great risk. Just one other comment. For some diseases, there is no herd immunity level at all. And this is a great trivia question that stumps a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, mm -hmm. tetanus toxoid, every, every individual is individually susceptible to tetanus. There's no amount of 
protection around you that prevents you from getting tetanus when you step on a nail. So uh, yeah. again, each, each disease needs, does need to be looked at differently. And there are very different thresholds. With some like measles, it's got to be probably 95%, very high. Yeah. And that's mostly because when you step on a nail, that isn't contagious from one person to another. That's the mm -hmm. environment. Exactly. Uh, it's an environmental hazard. Exactly. Tetanus. So there's so much heroism that goes on. I, I think to reframe your question just a bit, what I like to focus on is that there's a lot of innovation that does take place in remote areas. And uh, we, we had a contract funded by the Gates Foundation called ARISE, A-R-I-S-E. And again, if one were to be interested, you could Google JSI and ARISE, and you'll see a lot of reports, including an article in health policy and planning. And the amazing thing we found is that when you go to rural or remote areas and you find examples of really good practices, the health workers oftentimes don't even realize that they have figured out something, that they are doing a good practice. I, I don't like to use the word best practice. It sounds so final, but they're doing good practices and these are promising approaches, but we haven't really, in many cases, established a good culture of learning so that those lessons are shared laterally you know, because, you know, peripheral health workers will learn from other peripheral health workers more than they'll learn from someone sitting in the capital city. People like learn from people who are facing similar challenges. So I think there are a lot of good things that are happening in countries, really too many to name. But we what we need to do, the ultimate innovation would be to support those health workers and get them to share their innovations and their experiences with each other. And uh, there's been a lot of improvement in recent years, WHO, the Gates Foundation, a lot of people are investing in exactly that, trying to establish platforms for people to learn from each other, but it's a fairly recent development. So I think with that, I believe we are out of time. So I wanna thank you again, Robert, for coming to talk with us today and sharing your expertise on immunizations and answer our many questions. It was really a fun time and really interesting to hear from you. Um, so for our listeners who wanna learn more about Mr. Steinglass and his work, you can find a link to his work in the description down below. And he also has a new book, which is Eradicating Smallpox in Ethiopia. So check that out also. And thank you again, though, for joining us. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To find more of our content or explore the exciting work being done by our parent organization, the Global Health Impact Project, you can check out our website in the description below. The Global Health Impact Project hopes to support efforts like this podcast to provide information about and advocate for access to essential medicines. Also, follow the Global Health Impact Project social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And a special thanks to the funding provided by the World Health Organization through the grant for Global Health Justice and Equitable Vaccine Allocation. Until next time, don't forget, talking is the best medicine. <laughs>